This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black Left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, gay, lesbian, and other LGBTQ persons have garnered more political support than ever. But what does that mean for poor Black and Brown LGBTQ young people who are homeless on the streets of New York? And peace and national reconciliation may finally be on the horizon in Syria after eight years of U.S. regime change warfare against that country. We'll hear from Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace. But first, there can be little doubt that the U.S. empire is in deep disarray, and it's not all about Donald Trump. Dr. Anthony Montero, the Philadelphia-based Du Boisian scholar, says U.S. imperialism faces a multitude of crises at home and abroad. Dr. Montero will be one of the speakers at Black Agenda Report's 13th anniversary celebration this Saturday, October 26th, at the People's Forum in New York City. The title of his talk will be Towards a Left that is Worthy of Black People and the Working Class. To get to where we need to be, we must understand where we are and how we got to where we are. And from the standpoint of the left, as well as the entire American political and ideological scene, we're in a malaise. The crisis of bourgeois politics is also the crisis of left politics. And I think when we say the crisis of left politics, we're really talking about pretty much the white dominated left or the ideological and political positions that adhere to frameworks and ways of knowing and understanding the world that proceed from white ideologues, philosophers, theorists, and practitioners. And uh, I guess just to make a long story short, as you and I have discussed and as you have written on many occasions, the left, including the black left, is not a real left. It is a fake left. It is a left that several decades ago, turned its back on black working people in the interest of aligning itself with the liberal establishment that controls the Democratic Party. And again, as you have pointed out, it was the seduction of Obamism, of Obama himself, and all that that meant that ended up, perhaps unintentionally, maybe intentionally on the part of of many, decimating, decimating what was left of the black left, that is, 
the black left that came out of the great black freedom movements of the 1950s through the 1970s. And so we are confronted today with a task, the likes of which many of us have never seen, of inventing and creating something that is left in the sense of fighting against wars of intervention and for a positive peace, meaning peace with justice, that sees the working class as the principal agency of progressive change and that ultimately aligns with a politics that leads to the end of capitalism and the building of an economy and a social system based upon the fact that profit is no longer and the markets are no longer what determines economic and political decisions. That means that we in the United States must catch up to where the world is and where the world is going, where Asia is going, and where ultimately Africa and South America will be going. Yes, in many ways, the advent of Obama forced our hand as the residue of the 60s. People who still called themselves revolutionaries repudiated their own histories just in order to have a black president. But it is true that today, if you read the news, working class is mentioned far more often by Democrats than they have in 20 or 30 years. Middle class had replaced working class a long time ago. But is that a sign of an advance of the left, or is this cosmetic? Well, if one considers the Democratic Party the home of the left, then maybe it is. I don't think that the Democratic Party, even with the change in rhetoric and language, is a left party. And I don't consider any of the candidates, perhaps with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, and I'll explain that, as being left. It is a party that is pretty much about cosmetics and public relations and representations, and so on. In 2016, they were defeated by their investment in identity politics and intersectionality politics and the politics of shaming and canceling and constituencies that were formed out of hyper-individualist, petty bourgeois concerns. That lost wasn't just Hillary, it was the politics of the Democratic Party in 2016 were defeated. Trump, on the other side, had the political understanding to realize that working people were dissatisfied with the wars, with the austerity, with the ongoing effects and after effects of the Great Recession. And therefore, he won in effect by winning parts, significant parts of the working class that had traditionally voted Democrat and the other parts of the working class who just didn't vote. 
Now, now, Dr. Montero, you seem to be downplaying the racist appeal of Trump. Uh, I am, because I don't I don't feel that the essence of the appeal was racist. I think, of course, a good part of his electorate are rooted in racism. But I think what came to the fore, and I'm prepared to argue this, in 2016 was a real kind of economic class rebellion, ill-formed, burdened by all of the history of the white working class and white middle class and this country in general. But nonetheless, he could not have achieved what he achieved And here I'm talking about 70% of those primarily white counties that had voted for Obama twice voted for Trump in 2016. 13% of those who voted for Bernie in 2016 voted for Trump. A large part of the electorate, which would have been a constituency for Hillary because it was that for Trump, and here in particular, I'm talking about black voters, abstained from the electoral process. I consider that abstention to be almost a rejection of the Democratic Party's abandonment of black interests. And I'm not just talking about Obama here. I'm talking about the Congressional Black Caucus. I'm talking about black city officials in places like Philadelphia and New York, who have abandoned public education and allowed for gentrification and impoverishment to go ahead while talking all of this liberal rhetoric and identity politics rhetoric. So I think we have to look at the class dynamics in the 2016 election, even while racism was and will be a part of the American political ideological struggle for some time to come. At the same time, we have to do with uh, what the academic forces of the left, quote unquote, are unwilling to do, and that is look at class. Yes, many of us say that the Democrats can't beat Trump unless they push for transformational or at least big ticket reform items. But the established Democratic Party isn't ready to do that anyway. Yes, and they can't fight for any big ticket items unless they talk about ending the wars of intervention and regime change, which we are now coming to understand over the last 18 years has cost about $8 trillion. And outside of Tulsi Gabbard, none of them have taken a forward position opposing future and past wars of intervention. I mean, that's where we are at this point. And so you can't, and you pointed this out, you cannot be left or socialist and be for war. Well, you can by defining yourself as a socialist, but then we would label you accurately as a social imperialist. And it's being a socialist and an imperialist or socialist and pro-war of intervention is an impossibility because it's like riding two horses going in opposite direction. It doesn't work.
That's right, and Tulsi Gabbard is the only Democratic candidate who has expressed an anti-imperialist position, although she doesn't use the term anti-imperialist. She says she's against regime change wars. Yes, and I would not call her an anti-imperialist. I would call her a opponent of regime change wars, which is a policy of the larger neocon imperialist ruling structures in this country. Now, maybe she will become an anti-imperialist. I set the anti-imperialist bar a little higher than Tulsi. However, and this is interesting, Glenn, there is a real possibility that she having been so viciously attacked by the reactionary establishment in the Democratic Party and the media, and here I'm talking about Hillary Clinton and the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC and a whole slew of others, having been so viciously attacked, her recognition and the issues upon which she stands have greater visibility among people, meaning that she in some ways could be the Bernie Sanders of the 2020 elections. And she could upset, and by that I mean not winning the Iowa caucuses, but showing that's so good that she becomes a major force going forward in the uh, Democratic primary. Can she win the primary? I doubt it. But can she shape and reshape political discourse concerning wars of intervention and imperial retreat, I think she can. Yes, of course, Gabbard is not an anti-imperialist. She simply opposes the dominant imperialist strategy of regime change. But imperialism doesn't have many more strategies, many more options these days. It is greatly shrunken in terms of those options. Yes, I think you're very right about this. And that is why I have attempted to argue that in some ways we're in the throes of what could be called an imperial retreat. Now, retreat from what to what? Well, obviously a retreat from the policies that ensued after the collapse of the Soviet Union which was to establish a a unipolar world, a single hegemon, the dollar as an unquestionable currency for world trade and finance, the U.S. military as the policeman of the whole world. Now we are witnessing, and it's not just Trump. If you read the writers in the Financial Times that say these policies of retreat will have to continue after Trump. Trump, however, is doing in such, from the standpoint of the ruling class, in such a messy and unpredictable way that they would prefer someone else do it. But I think imperial retreat, at least a retreat from military intervention, regime change, and even color revolutions as in the Ukraine and the attempt to bring it about in Russia against Putin, that whole history may be over and we may be in a stage of imperial retreat. But the unipolar world, 
will be replaced with a multipolar world, which means a more democratic world, but a world where a socialist China, and I'm, I'm making the claim that as a result of the 13th Party Congress in 2012 and the rise of the leadership of Xi Jinping, that China is moving more progressively towards a socialist reconstitution of its economy from state, a kind of a state capitalist economy, a regulated market economy to a socialist economy with regulated markets. Well, Dr. Montero, as it moves towards this socialist state, what's it going to do with all its billionaires, of which it has as more billionaires than any other country but the U.S.? Mm. Well, that's a good question, and, and I can't answer that. Hopefully, there'll be some Chinese who are familiar with the dynamics and processes in that country that will answer that for us. But in a population of 1.5 billion, we would expect that where there are billionaires, they would have more than a country like the United States with 325 million people. But that is not the central question. We have already seen that the structure of the Chinese economic political system and the close coordination of political and economic elites has made it possible for them to do what in most people's minds prior to them doing it was inconceivable, lifting 300 million people out of deep poverty. We know that their infrastructure is the envy of the world, including their public transportation and train systems. We also know that they have the capacity technologically and financially to advance this new economic model called the Belt and Road, which will link countries and economies from Western Europe, including England and Italy, to Asia in a single trading system, which will challenge the old EU IMF World Bank systems. This is something completely new. Now, for me, the next big question is whether Africa, what will become of Africa in the advancing ascension of Asia? I tend to be an optimist and I tend to think that this is the life raft that Africa has been looking for to get it out of the straitjacket of the World Bank and the IMF and the various Western economic, financial, and trading systems. You're talking uh, about Africa's inclusion in the One Belt, One Road plan that China and Russia are embarked on. Absolutely. And even beyond the One Belt, One Road, involved in the Asian Infrastructure Bank, which can provide loans on different terms in the IMF, the World Bank, and the European Central Bank. The rise of multiple currencies, which means that a country like Cote d'Ivoire might be able to break from the franc as its national currency and become linked to other currency arrangements. The same with Venezuela. And of course, we have talked many, many times about the new alliances, and they seem to be appearing on the world stage 
every day a new one. For example, we have talked about the Russia-Iran-China alliance. We've added to it Russia-Iran-China and Syria, and now Venezuela. And for all intents and purposes, it looks like the eastern flank of NATO, represented by Turkey, is moving away from Western Europe and to Russia and China and Iran and so on and so forth. This is a new world coming into being. It is centered at this time in Asia, both Western Asia, they call it the Middle East, and South Asia and East Asia. It is a new system. It arises while the West is in chaos and in decline. With the shrinking of the global capitalist domain, might the U.S. ruling class be forced to contemplate domestic policies that it never would have accepted before? Well, the ruling class of the United States is contemplating many options for itself, but it contemplates all of this in a state of panic and a state of almost psychological breakdown, if you want to put it that way. They fear the future more than we, the people, fear it. So yes, they can consider a lot of things, but their considerations occur within the framework of a rapidly changing world, a deepening class conflict, class resentment, class hatred within the United States. And this is represented by the fact that the masses of people do not trust or feel are legitimate any of the major foundational institutions, be it the Congress, be it the presidency, be it the press, be it the universities. So we're in a new moment in world developments, but I think a deepening class division and what looks to me as class conflict within the United States. And I am happy to see the rise of this strike wave, starting with the teachers in Oregon and West Virginia, now going over to the General Motors workers, the UAW, who has been reluctant for the last 30 some years to even talk about a strike. Now they're on this in this strike struggle. And of course, the strike of the Chicago teachers. We cannot lose sight of these developments among the working class, the consciousness of the working class, the deepening class hatred, the deepening class resentment, the rejection of all of the elites from the universities to the House of Representatives to the state houses uh, and so on. That was Dr. Anthony Montero, an organizer with the Philadelphia Saturday Free School. He will be a featured speaker at Black Agenda Report's 13th anniversary celebration this Saturday at the People's Forum in New York City. Black Alliance for Peace lead organizer Ajamu Baraka will also speak at the Black Agenda Report anniversary affair. Baraka is an editor and columnist at Bar. We asked Baraka for his analysis of the situation in Syria, where the eight-year-long U.S. regime change war appears to be unraveling. 
After years of collaboration with the United States, the Syrian Kurds have now realigned with the national government in Damascus. We asked Baraka if peace and national reconciliation is finally in the cards for Syria. Well, we hope that that to be the case, and that's why we have been very aggressive in attempting to try to contextualize what is unfolding in Syria over the last few weeks. We recognize from the very beginning that part of reorienting the black radical perspective is to engage directly in the ideological struggle, one in which the terrain of, of consciousness is the main element that we have to focus in on. And that means that we have to consistently remind people of the ongoing objective interest of the U.S. state, that it, it doesn't really matter who is sitting in the white people's house. The interests that are being protected in advance are constant. And so we have to remind people of the role that the Obama administration played in pursuing full-spectrum dominance and engaging in regime change wars uh, in various parts of the world, and specifically in Syria. We know that some so-called leftists are responding to that in a negative way. They say that that's in the past, that it is not keeping the focus on Trump. But, you know, we have a different political objective. We, again, understand that we've got to win our people back from the clutches of the Democratic Party, and the hegemony of the neoliberal world perspective. So we get to remind people of the neoliberal interests that Obama represented so that they are not confused by the continuation of those policies under Trump. So we see that what is unfolding with the conversation or the debate around the Kurds is something useful for us. Again, we talk about and we look at the plight of the Kurds. We look at the role that they have played. We look at the fact that there would be no crisis in Syria if the Obama administration would not have intervened directly into that sovereign nation. So this is our responsibility. This is what we're trying to do. It's a difficult one, but one that's absolutely necessary. The character of the war against Syria, like Obama's war against Libya, is a proxy war using jihadist terrorist fighters as proxies for U.S. troops, and in the latter stages, then dragooning, in a way, the Kurds into that proxy warfare. Well, that's absolutely correct. That's been a strategy of U.S. policymakers for quite some time, and in particular, over the last almost two decades in the so-called Middle East. The situation with the Kurds is a very, very complex one. We believe that reducing that analysis to just the Kurds being a proxy for the U.S. does violence to the complexity of that situation. And it's a very delicate one. The Kurds have been involved in their current iteration uh, since for the last three decades as a left force in that part of the world, they have been fighting the fight for some degree of autonomy and maybe even self-determination, which meant that there was tension between them and the Syrian state. When the jihadists were given the green light to begin to infiltrate into Syria to undermine the Assad regime uh, and the Assad government, that is, was required to begin to pull back its forces to defend 
uh, more populated areas, the Kurds were left by themselves, uh, even though they were provided some degree of arms by the Syrian state. And so they had a choice of either genocide, because they knew that they were being targeted by these jihadist forces as ungodly leftists, or to look for whatever assistance they could find. And that assistance came from the U.S. We're not saying that is necessarily something we would completely approve of, but it's an objective reality that they had to deal with. And so that's, in fact, what happened. Yes, the deadly threat against the Kurds came from forces that were initially trained and armed with billions of dollars by the United States. There would have been no jihadist threat to Kurdish existence if the U.S. had not begun this proxy war. Exactly. And that's just the proxy perspective is one that makes sense in terms of that analysis. But again, you see that that is a very complicated one, and it takes a lot of time to really unpack those complexities. But what is really interesting now is that in the alignment that took place between the Kurds and the U.S., that the Kurds were then projected in the one Syria as a progressive force, and as a consequence, there was a lot of support generated. Now it becomes very difficult for the U.S. to try to change that picture, even though we saw that Trump the other day said that the Kurds were not angels and then went on a tirade about them being communists. So it's going to be a very difficult and very complicated situation for all of us to try to unpack. Yes, and much more difficult for the United States since it has lost or given up voluntarily one of its proxies. Exactly. And it's really interesting, Glenn, because it seems that the Turks and the U.S. really made a strategic blunder that plays right into the objective interests of the sovereign Syrian government and their allies. Their objective was to reestablish the territorial integrity of the Syrian state. Part of that was trying to come to some kind of reconciliation with the Kurdish movement. The Kurds were in a very strong position to advocate for their particular perspective and that the national reconciliation. But as a consequence of this invasion by Turkey, that process of negotiation was accelerated. Uh, now we see the beginnings of a reconciliation between the Kurds and the central government, which you know is going to result, it appears, in that territorial reintegration uh, and the strengthening of the state. It strengthens the Russian position, and it means that the Turks, who are now in the crosshairs of now U.S. sanctions, feel like they have no other direction to go. But in fact, for them to move even closer to Russia, so it's been a strategic blunder from the point of view of imperialism. And yet the possibility of national reconciliation in Syria and peace has set the corporate media and most of the Democratic Party, almost all of it, in an even bigger and deeper and hotter war fever. And a political contradiction that is going to emerge in the 2020 election, that is, the Democrats are making the strategic blunder of allowing themselves to be painted as a war party and for the Trump forces to uh, pretend to be anti-war. We vote yesterday in the Congress for continued U.S. presence in Syria was uh, Exhibit A in that process. So it is a strange but yet somewhat understandable situation we find ourselves in because 
what we see is that the war party character of the Democrats is just being exposed. They've always been a war party, but because of the complexities of politics in the West, we've seen this, this interesting shift where you're no longer able to just paint the Republicans as the so-called war party, the aggressors, like was done in the past. Now we're seeing the stark interest being exposed, and that's a good thing because it's allowing people to really see what interests are in play and where we need to align ourselves. You've been active in defense of those folks who got arrested at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington earlier this year and to now face possible prison terms. How's that going? Well, we have we are in a, in a campaign now of demanding that the Trump administration drop its charges. The charges are bogus. They want to make an example of the Venezuela embassy protectors, the last four of them that were in the embassy protecting the embassy so that it would not be taken over by the Guado puppet forces illegally. But the Trump administration decided to illegally invade the sovereign territory of Venezuela, the embassy that is, and make an arrest in clear violation of international norms and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. So we want to make sure that people understand that this situation with Venezuela and the embassy has implications way beyond just that particular incident, that this is another example of a commitment to lawlessness on the part of the Trump administration and the Democrats, because they're also supporting the Trump administration's attempt to put these individuals in jail. It means that this notion of the sovereignty of territories in various states, even for the U.S., can now be undermined if there's a conflict in terms of recognizing a particular government. So it's a very dangerous situation. We are building support uh, and awareness for the situation in the U.S. and internationally. The U.S. doesn't seem to respect the sovereignty of any country, and yet it says it is the guardian of the sea lanes and the guardian of the freedom of the peoples of the world. That is the one ideological objective we've got to really address effectively. This notion of the U.S. being some kind of benevolent nation, a shining city on the hill, a defender of democracy and human rights, that notion has got to be addressed because if we're ever going to be able to build a progressive movement in the U.S., we've got to undermine the ideological justifications that the ruling class has been effective in advancing in order to give cover to its aggression and the advancement of its particular interests. Interests are counter to the interests of the vast majority of the people in the U.S. So it's time to do away with the fairy tales, to do away with this notion of American exceptionalism, because that has translated into American lawlessness and the U.S. being seen as a rogue state. So that has got to be disconnected from any progressive movement that's developing with young people and has to be disconnected from the progressive movement in general. We don't need any more left patriots. That was Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace. Baraka is also an editor and columnist for Black Agenda Report and will speak at BAR's 13th anniversary celebration this Saturday in New York City. 
There is little question that in political terms, LGBTQ communities have garnered more support than ever over the past decade, especially with the Black Lives Matter upsurge of 2014 and 15. However, high-profile success doesn't necessarily translate to progress on the ground for black and poor members of those communities. We spoke with Mustafa Sullivan, Executive Director of FIERCE, a membership-based organization dedicated to building the power and leadership of LGBTQ youth of color in New York City. Sullivan is both black and a Muslim? Well, I think there was two things that I would say happened. I think one thing is there was a lot of internal battles in our community around what Black actually is, right? So if you're a Black queer person, are you really Black? If you're a Black trans person, are you really Black? And also, I think there was, for some people, a misunderstanding that Black Lives Matter was the only movement that had Black, queer, and trans people there, right? Like, our community has been there well before this time period, right? And so I think that what happened at that moment was a lot of folks, including the sisters in um, Black Lives Matter, who co-founded Black Lives Matter, were sort of, they got on the global stage, right? They got a lot of attention, and it made some people feel uncomfortable because it felt like, you know, for them, it was like, oh, that means that Black straight people can't speak, you know? And we saw, um, I definitely saw the emergence over the past couple of years of like a Black pride movement that's about straight folks as if, as if we weren't there supporting our communities, right? Like I came out in 1998, so I was a part of my community. I grew up in a Black Muslim community. I grew up around and loving Black people. So it's not, it wasn't about that we don't love our people, but we know that there's stuff that we had to go through within our community that's really important about us being a, a member and written into the history of our community. I think the second thing that I think some people are confused about is they think that exposure for one set of people means exposure and a better life for everyone, right? So for example, right, like, you know, I love Malcolm X, but because Malcolm X was Malcolm X, that doesn't mean every Black person is Malcolm X. And so what I'm saying is that there was this idea that the Black experience and the Black queer and trans experience is the same for all of us. And also that we're all like pocketing and benefiting. You know, like all of us now, you know, are no longer poor. All of us now are no longer um, suffering the same police violence that Black straight people face, that all of us somehow made it, right? And there's these weird articles that have started to come out about like, oh, the Black gay man is doing so much better than the Black straight man, right? When I know for a fact the year that I was unemployed coincidentally was 2013 to 2014. And all of my friends, um, many of who are just black, you know, like, or black straight men, all of us were unemployed. So that didn't change our economic conditions just because some folks got on the national stage and because some people, um, you know, in Time Magazine and all national media started to cover us. We're still suffering in those jails next to black straight men. We're still suffering... Um, in our communities when it comes to the violence that poverty inflicts on our bodies just as much and alongside um, what's happening um, to our Black families. So it's not, you know, like, I think some people 
in our community for whatever reason really felt like the only people who are important now when we talk about um, movement, when we talk about power is just black, queer, and trans folks, as if somehow now all of us are, you know what I mean? Like there was something weird about that that came up within our own community. Like I've got into some arguments too around like in the Bronx with folks just talking about like what happens when the police show up. Well, yes, if we're talking about young Black people in the Bronx and the multitude of problems and oppressions that beset them, we ought to add some more problems and oppressions if that young Black person in the Bronx is also gay. Exactly, exactly. But it's not like we're doing, you know, like all these We I've seen a lot of weird studies like that or, or weird articles that people are like, oh, we're doing so much better. And that's just not true. Yes, part of the popular wisdom is that the white two-job gay household is the ideal demographic because it's so prosperous and uh, has so much spendable income. But that's not the portrait of the kind of person that you work with every day. No, absolutely not. A majority of the young people that I work with are homeless, right? So that means that they got pushed out of their families of origin either from abuse or violence or poverty and whatever ramifications and reflections of that. So that's very similar to a young black straight person. The difference is that their identity was not the reason that they got thrown out of their home. Their understanding of their own gender and their self-determination about their own gender was not the reason that they were thrown out their home. What they chose to wear in their own self-autonomous bodies was not the reason that they might have been um, hated or shunned from their family. So that's the difference that I think that people should understand who really love the Black community. It's not that any of us are against the Black community, but some of us, unfortunately, have families that did not accept us. I luckily, and I'm of some people, right, who had some type of at least family privilege when it comes to my family loves me. I'm one of 10. I have seven sisters and two brothers. So I have a big family that loves me and that cares about me. But still, it took a long time for me to deal with my own oppression and my own coming out process because I saw my peers, my friends, getting kicked out of their homes, being shunned by their parents, being completely um, demoralized at really young ages and having to make it on their own. So I kept it to myself because I didn't want to deal with that situation. And I had enough, I'm um, fairly masculine, so I had enough privilege in that aspect that, you know, people didn't know, you know, and I could pretend that I was completely straight. And that's probably happening, and we know that that's happening still to this day, even though there's a lot of media exposure for example. Yes, the gay world that you deal with is very far away from a world of lots of money and high fashion and celebrity. It's in the Bronx, and the folks you deal with are in constant conflict with the criminal justice system. That's right, absolutely. Um, Many of my members, like last year, we actually started a youth bail fund because we realized that Um, Many of our young people who are activists, who are community organizers, were going through a lot of pain when it came to the criminal justice system. They were being charged with various charges, whether it be turnstile jumping, whatever the charges, the point is that we feel like our people should not be locked up. So we created a bail fund so that we could support them. It's really small. It's particularly for um, the most active members of FIERCE. But we particularly know that it makes a difference when you can bail someone out and they can defend themselves, they can be able to get back to their life, whatever semblance of a normal life they can have after they've been incarcerated. But also, like, when you're in prison, 
when you're in jail, when you can't pay your bail, it's much more likely for you to take whatever plea deal they may offer, whether you be guilty or not, because you want to expedite your suffering, right? You want to get out as soon as possible, or you want, um, you're afraid to like argue and say that you didn't do something if the police said you did it. And we know as we look at more and more of these cases, many times people are pleading guilty just because they face the pressure from the system, right? The movie that we saw about the Central Park Five, that's still happening. That's still happening all across this country to young Black folks, right? We know that that's still happening, but no one, well, at least when it comes to power, no one is really admitting that that's the reason why the jails are so full, besides the fact that they just want to continue um, slave catching across this country. You've championed the case of Abel Cedeno, who's been sentenced to 14 years in prison for defending himself with a knife uh, against attackers in school in the Bronx. Yes. And, you know, I want to be clear that we're not supporting Abel because we think that anyone deserves the violence that occurred. And actually, we believe that that violence was systemic, right? Like the reason that Abel was in that situation was because when he was bullied, the school did nothing for years and years and years. This is a school that literally before this incident, before it was called the Bronx Zoo School. We know this across the Bronx. We also know that they closed the school right after the incident. And we also know that they told three different adults. There were three adults in that classroom who never spoke about what actually happened. So they allowed this situation to be painted as if Abel was just some violent vigilante who just wanted to come to school to kill. That's what the city wants us to believe about what happened in that classroom. But there were three adults in that classroom. We know that in that school, weeks, weeks and weeks before this incident happened, a young sixth grader was trying to hang himself in that school. But that never came up in the criminal case because we know that often in these criminal cases, the prosecution and the city, right, all the people who control the way that court's set up, they manipulate the facts and they keep certain information out so that people can be found guilty. And I wonder, and I don't, I don't wonder, I know that if Abel was white, he would not have been dealt with in this particular case. And so we're supporting the idea that the DOE particularly supported and allowed this incident to happen for years and years and years. And because a young person died, they simply want to put it on Abel's back and that's just not okay. And not only is it not okay, but it's hyper-violent. Like this idea that you're supposed to be ending bullying and supporting LGBTQ students, but the idea is that, you know, they should just take bullying, they should just accept it, and then, you know, commit suicide, right? Because that's ultimately what happens. Many times when young people are bullied in, in DOE schools and schools across this country, they kill themselves because they face violence. We know that that has happened in New York City schools multiple times, multiple times. To straight young people, too, it's not just an issue that affects um, young gay and lesbian young people. So what they did to Abel, they will do to any young person that they unfortunately did not protect and did not keep away from this violent situation that we know just continues to happen when it comes to bullying, right? What do you tell your young person? What is a parent, any reasonable parent of any race, tell their child when they're being bullied? You teach them to fight back. You tell them, yes, yeah, to report, to talk to teachers, but if they do nothing, no sensible parent is simply going to allow their child to be bullied endlessly without any type of uh, possibilities or teaching them self-defense. That's just the reality in our community, and that's just the reality of how bad our school system is when it comes to actually dealing with bullying and really teaching these young people how to treat each other and how to respect each other.
Lots of cops come from, or at least used to come from, the same cohorts that think bullying gays is just good fun. That's absolutely true. And that's the other weird situation that we have in our school system. We have a school system that essentially gives more power to police than to teachers, than to parents, and especially to young people, right? So getting into an argument is something that you can get arrested for in New York City schools and multiple schools across this country. Right, it's an epidemic in this epidemic of believing for whatever reason that police are really good. You know, like now we have this situation going on in New York City where now they're trying to tell police to be first responders. We know that that's how they kill people, right? We know that the majority of the people who die um, in these police cases are folks who are suffering from mental health issues. So the option is not to give that power over to police. The option should be, a sensible option is to create a real mental health system that actually allows people to get real support for the needs that people face. But yet the city right now is pumping money. I think they're pumping approximately $1.2 billion into getting more police in our streets, more police in our schools. But there's no investment, very little investment, and a failing investment, in fact, in New York City when it comes to actual mental health. The mayor has this program called Thrive, which we know really hasn't actually changed the mental health supports that are available for our communities and especially particularly in our schools. Going to jail or prison is an especially terrifying experience if you don't have a self-protective group to hook up with once you get there. But there are no such self-protective groups in prison for gay people. No, there's very little. There's some groups that are able to go into schools, I mean, into prison, and actually provide support for um, young LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ folks. Many times they're just left to the vices of the prison, right? Like we know, for example, Lenin Polanco, a young trans young person was in Rikers Island and died waiting on, I believe it was about less than $100 in bail. She was waiting on bail to see the judge and she was killed in, in jail, killed in Rikers Island. So we know that we're not getting any type of protections in prison. And particularly when you're trans, when you're a trans woman of color in prison, you're particularly treated incredibly violently and open to all different types of abuse, including sexual abuse. But you're not just making a special pleading for gays and trans in prison for protection, but you have positions on prison and the need for its abolition. Yeah, I mean, we know that, for example, one of the big things that we should all understand about prison is that wealthy people do not go to prison. The majority of the people who are really the biggest criminals in the world are wealthy individuals, billionaires who are taking advantage of land, that are stealing our our community's um, property, that are literally right now profiting off the burning of the rainforest, like the literal lungs of the world. None of those people are in prison. Just our poor folks, just poor black and brown people all over the world are in prison, right? Because the real crime is to be poor. It's not to commit murder because these billionaires are committing murder all day. It's not even theft, right? Because they're stealing, literally stealing the land that we live on day by day by day. But for some reason, we're supposed to believe in this system of crime that essentially punishes our poor black and brown people, that only punishes us and allows the wealthy to continue to actually ironically or more sadistically profit off of creating more and more prisons.
In your work, do you sometimes get the criticism from folks with money that you ought to stick to your field work and leave the political commentary for someone else? Well, I think that what we get is there's one of two things. You get either that, right, which is the idea that we don't really understand the power structures and a lot of times wealthy folks want to investigate well, what's really happening as if as if our direct experiences are not enough for what's really happening when it comes to prison, when it comes to oppression in this world. But you also get a little bit of like sort of a looking in, right, like through the looking glass approach, like because they don't really want to touch the real core issues of what we're facing. So they'll look into our world and sort of help us, quote unquote, help us and sort of guide us and tell us how we should live, how we should be, how we should create. Because a lot of folks essentially who are wealthy just believe if you just get money, that will solve the problem. But they also don't want you to have their money, right? So they're like, well, go make your own money. Go learn all this business stuff. Go learn from us. Because for whatever reason, they believe that the wisdom lies at the seat of a dollar. Or that whatever money that it is that they have that they've infused into the system allows them to tell us what to do and how to live our lives. And you see this a lot um, when it comes to like the broader funding apparatus that supports our communities, right? You see a lot of initiatives that are led. There's many times that I've seen billionaires drop money into New York City, and then all of a sudden there's a new priority for how we should do schools. Like, for example, a perfect example is the small schools movement. When Gates Foundation dropped money into New York City, I believe it was almost 10 years ago at this point, when they started to do that investment, once they started to uncover the deeper problems of why our schools don't work outside of the school size, they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with the idea that the DOE um, was contracting the police department to, to be in schools. They didn't want to deal with the racialized violence that comes from some of the teachers who are not trained to understand our young people and criminalize them literally from the time they're like three years old. They didn't want to deal with all of those complex problems. And so, you know, they no longer had a ribbon to tie around New York City and some other school districts. So quickly you saw their money evaporated because they started to see that by the way, as billionaires, their solutions are not what we need. What we need is their resources and their money that they made off the backs of our people. That's what we actually need. Their ideas and all that, eh, they can keep that to themselves. And, you know, we also have a problem, as I'm sure you're aware, that that's not something exclusive to the white capitalist community. There's also plenty of black capitalists, and I'm sure you know who they are, that have this idea that they should tell our communities, especially our poor black and brown communities, exactly how you should live and what you should be and what you should do. I mean, that's just generally everywhere. When you really see how people are profiting off of our communities, it's just the reality, unfortunately, of, of wealth, um, and black wealth particularly. Yes, and those rich men of color want you also to admire them as role models. Exactly, exactly. That's what they believe their role in society is. And so we, we have to resist that. We have to resist that and also demand that they give more of our dollars to us and allow us to do whatever we need to do with that, that capital. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left 
I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. 